0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is part of my birthday special, which is a mini season of seven new interviews being released on May 25th. I know a lot of us are spending time reflecting on what matters. And many of you have told me that you're planning on making big changes in your life. So if this interview with Laura Gassner Otting resonates with you, jump over to heylgo.com forward slash where others won't and check out her brand new Limitless course. LGO, as you're about to find out, has a refreshing, no BS perspective on the world. And she's been through the ringer. So that's why she's the perfect person to coach you through the changes that you want to make in your life. I'm telling you, if you love this episode, go to heylgo.com forward slash where others won't and check out the limitless course now enjoy the show I usually start with people's names, but I feel like with you, I just want to say, hey, LGO.
1: You know, that's it. My name's Laura Gassner-Odding, and it's a lot of name. So all my friends call me LGO.
0: And you've got the perfect Twitter and Instagram handles, you just hey. And that, so that should be a, almost your show on its own.
1: Yeah, hey, you know, that's LGO. Your, yeah, TV <laughs> show. That would be great, right? Hey, LGO. and In fact, I even bought heylgo.com. So that is why it's a shortcut to lauragastnerodding.com. Because, you know, if you leave leave your life in everyone else's hands, and they get it wrong, right? They get your story wrong. They get your name wrong. They spell your name wrong. So I figured, hey, LGO, it's easy.
0: Brilliant. Well, we were chatting before, and we're talking about where others won't. And I send you some questions, but let's just rip that up and just have a conversation. So we're going to go where others won't. We actually prepared for this episode. Tell me about yourself. This is the first time we've connected. We're in so many of the same circles. We're in keynote circles together. We've got common friends. We'll shout out to Trav McKenzie, who we both uh, know and love over in Boston. Uh, We're in all these similar circles. We've got all these same friends. We do similar things. Uh, we talk about similar things, but tell me your background. Let's let's do the full coffee chat.
1: Yeah. So I, um, I am an unrepentant idealist who has spent <laughs> my career in service of finding greatness within myself and finding greatness within other people, because I believe deeply that we all have that extra gear. We all have something more that we don't quite know we have. And so I have done that in the political world. I've done that in the government world. I've done that in nonprofits. I've done that through executive search. And I'm doing that now as a speaker and an author.
0: Let's start from the top there. So your government experience and anyone that's seen your TED talk will have seen a little bit of this. But tell us about that world because that was kind of where you thought you were headed in your life.
1: Yeah, so when I was a teenager, I thought that I was going to be the first female senator from the great state of Florida. That was my plan—the um, first female Democratic senator, I should say. Okay, that was yeah. a Republican. Uh, and and meanwhile, that's she's the only female senator there ever been from the great state of Florida. So, Florida, get your act together. It's been thirty-five years since I set that goal. Yeah. Uh, well, wait. So, why?
0: Wait. Why? Why? Why was that the goal?
1: Because I, I, you know, when I was growing up, there, there were, so I just turned forty nine a couple days ago, right? So I'm, 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 I'm old, and uh, I grew up before there were interesting jobs like uh, <laughs> tech startup entrepreneur right? or podcaster or or the things that we do now. And I thought, you know, you become a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a teacher. Like there were just very specific titles of jobs. It was default mode. it was default mode. And then there were these people who were problem solvers. They were leaders and they were the ones that we'd see on TV every night. They were the elected officials. And I thought, there are problems in the world and I want to solve them. So I should run for office. And... I just, for whatever reason, decided that the U.S. Senate would be the place I would do it, which, you know, now you think about it and you're like, that's the worst place to solve problems (laughs) as an elected official. (laughs) However, at the time, I thought I would. And of course, what background did almost every, I think at that time, every elected official had was law. So I thought, well, I'll become a lawyer, right? That's what I'm going to do. So I set myself on this path, and I, I, you know, it helped that I had a teacher in fourth grade who told me I was pretty argumentative, so, you know, I'd be a good lawyer. Um, of course, I told her she was wrong. <laughs> but, of course, yeah. uh, But, you know, there I was in law school, and I looked around that very first week, and I thought, Ugh, this is terrible. I've made a horrible mistake. I don't want to be here. And so I, I dropped out. And... And you know, in the dropping out of law school, I I did it because I was I was dating this this guy. Uh, you know, when you make terrible decisions in your life, you just make more terrible decisions. <laughs> yeah. And so I was dating this guy who was terrible for me. And I joke around. I, I I do this bit on stage where I say, and he had he had amazing taste in precisely two things. The first, of course, being girlfriends. <laughs> and the Second, being unknown. Governors from tiny southern states who had presidential ambitions and he dragged me to a um he dragged me to a little strip mall because back in the day there wasn't the internet. You couldn't, you couldn't just get information on somebody running for office in the internet. So he put my bike in the back of his iRock Z, which will tell you everything you need to know about this guy. And and we drove to this office, and in that little teeny campaign office was this teeny, this, 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 this video of then Governor Bill Clinton giving this incredibly impassioned speech about how there was nothing wrong with America that couldn't be fixed with what's right with America. And he offered as a policy proposal, national service, community service in exchange for college tuition. And in that moment, I had this epiphany that I didn't need to be the solution. I needed to find the solution and serve it. And to me, I went from, and this is what the TED talk is about, was going from saying, I, you know, how can I help? How can I solve the problem? How can I be the senator? How can I be, you know, in the center of everything to what needs to happen so that good ideas become the norm? And so I dropped out. I joined that presidential campaign. And this is like the biggest yada, yada, yada in the history of storytelling, but yada, 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 I end up in the White House helping create AmeriCorps.
0: Amazing. And the line, because I wrote this down, the line in the TED talk is, the noble calling that we feel to serve is not a calling for us to be the solution. It's a reminder to us that we're not the solution, which is yes. absolute gold. What a line that is. And ironically, now that we find out, uh, it was 20, 2016, I think you did the talk.
1: Yes. It was actually my very first public talk I ever gave.
0: Well, it's incredible, but what a line as well. And ironically, now we find ourselves essentially in that scenario, still four years down the track. I think, you know, if I were to give a a global diagnosis on leadership, it's exactly what you've said there. There's this idea of we've got too many people wanting to be the solution rather than pushing the right people up and then everyone playing their, their best role and being their best selves. And, and that's organizationally that's in po- politics it's in my discipline in sport it's it's it seems to be everywhere
1: it, it's absolutely everywhere I think we you know I think that leaders and, and I think all of us and and I talked about this in in the talk actually I think we get so busy creating these cathedrals and we forget that we need to create institutions and I I I, I I have been a serial entrepreneur in my career, and the the proudest the proudest thing I can say about my career is that everything I've ever created still exists and that's you know whether it's government programs or or political action committees or philanthropic giving circles or uh, my executive search firm or anything I've ever done still exists and I think it's because very early on, I had that realization that cathedrals are short-term and institutions last.
0: And so what what does that actually look like, though? Let's go a little bit deeper on that because I, I talk about that quite a bit. You know, I consult with professional sporting teams who are looking to get, similarly to you, unstuck. You know, how do we move forward here? And And a lot of it is that there's no plan in place for the institution to succeed over time. There's no... You know, there's short-termism, which again is is rattling governments, it's rattling nations, it's rattling organizations, people. So how do you actually set in place for an institution like the ones that you've built for them to be sustainable over time? Is it a mindset? Like what's what's the actual tangible thing do you think is key to that?
1: You know, I look. I mean, we both we both have experience in the recruitment industry, and mm. I think, you know, in twenty years of doing executive search, here's what I learned: that people in the midst of massive change do the thing that is the least scary, right? They do the thing that is the most comfortable. And they say things to me, They, I remember I'd walk into clients offices and they would say things like, our CEO just resigned. We need to find somebody exactly like her. Or <laughs> our CEO just resigned. We need to find the exact opposite person than her, right? right. right. And what I would say is, well, maybe, maybe not. What let's talk about what success looks like in this organization in 18 months, in 24 months, in 36 months, in in five years. What would success look like? And now what kind of person is gonna get the organization there? That's what she needs to look like. That's what the next person needs to be. And that you know, so rather than starting with the let's build a cult of leadership, right? Let's let's have this imaginary quote unquote perfect leader and then Have the organization hew towards them. Let's actually figure out where the organization needs to go. Because you know, I'd walk in and people would say things like, "We need a dynamic, articulate, uh, uh, brilliant uh, fundraising CEO." And I'd be like, "Great, dynamic in front of what audiences? Mm -hmm. Articulate about what topics? Brilliant (laughs) in terms of which sectors? Fundraising from what kinds of people? Right? Are you raising?" You know, a million five dollar donations, or are you raising a you know a a seed capital? You know, of 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 a tranche of five one million dollar you know uh, contributions. These are very different audiences, right? Somebody who's going to be articulate, uh, you know, in front of uh, junior high school students is not the same person who's going to be articulate in front of the boomer generation, like. But everybody thinks when they're defining this term of, you know, intelligent, dynamic, uh, uh, articulate, uh, fundraising, they think that they're defining it the same way. And then all of a sudden they start seeing live people sit in front of them in a search committee interview and they realize that they're all looking at different people and yeah. they're, they're judging them all differently. And so you, you can't create an institution unless you have some of those harder questions, which is what does success actually look like? rather than assuming we're all playing from the same hymnal.
0: Yeah, the context is so important and that's really the missing piece. And I, I wrote about this extensively in my book and and since and and speak a lot about it, is understanding the context. That's the historical context of the organisation, but then the, the the micro context of what you're talking about there. And what's great, let, you know, we're a, a huge you know, global organization that's rebuilding itself, that type of leader that's going to do that project is vastly different to your, um, you know, when you're the number one player in the market. You know, you kind of look at your Microsoft right now as an example, who've gone through massive change. Now that they're back at the the top, uh, so to speak. You know, it's in a different phase. And so recognizing that and and actually changing based on the context, I think is a, a really key part that's missing to a lot of these conversations.
1: Absolutely. And and even in organizations, look, I, you know, I, I founded my firm and I ran it for 10 years until I realized that the firm didn't need me anymore. I, when I, when I left the big traditional executive search firm, I had this I had kind of like a moment of rage, right? Where I realized, <laughs> I could do this work faster and better and smarter with more authenticity and more integrity and probably more profit and charge my clients less money and pay my people more than the way the traditional firms do it. And And I left in this huff. And, And I started my own firm, and because I was doing the work differently than the way the traditional firms did it, I had to be this like moxie-filled, iconoclastic, walking into the clients and saying, there's a better way. Mm -hmm. And I had to really convince them of that. And then after, you know, five years, seven years, I noticed that we started we started. Uh, we started spawning a lot of competition. A lot of other people said, "You know what? They're not wrong." And by the way, we keep going into our clients and pitching them our work, and they're like, "But what about doing it this other way?" And then by the ten-year mark, I, we would walk in, and we were really just competing against iterative versions of our own firm. And of course, we were the better version because we were the originals. And I, I kind of. I kind of, it wasn't that I got sick of pitching. I, ju- I just got kind of sick of winning because the firm didn't need this moxie filled, iconoclastic, the, there's a better way type of leader. It needed a leader who was super geeked out about the quality of the work. And frankly, I cared about the quality of the work, but doing the day to day management of the people, the quality assurance, I hated that. I loved being the leader. I loved being the champion. I am a great mentor. I am the friend that you want in your foxhole, but I am a crap manager. And when I got to the 10-year mark, I realized that the firm didn't need my type of leadership anymore. In fact, it needed my business partners Type of leadership. And she was very much, you know, she's a PhD from an Ivy League university with psychology degree. And she's a classically trained cellist. And she did horse jumping as a hobby in high school. And she's got this little blonde bob and a beautiful, lilting Southern accent. And she's all academic. And I am all like Brooklyn, Miami gut, you know, like yeah. I like I think I went to college. I don't remember much of it because I was mostly drunk, right? But I I it didn't the firm needed a different type of leadership. And I think institutions have to understand and people have to understand that there's sort of a time and a season for each of them, and it has to be the right place. And so I think I think there is this idea that we have we had this idea that leadership is one size fits all and all leaders look the same, but Every leader is very different and every organization needs a different type of leader at a different time.
0: Yeah. You, I think on your Instagram, you call yourself a provocateur and and that kind of runs out eventually, right? Like when you're, when you're the top dog, there's no more really being provocative. It's, it it, it turns into something else.
1: Well, and it's exhausting for your team. I, I, I I realize that, you know, if you're the CEO, your job is to be, if you're firing on all cylinders, right, your job is to be 18 to 24 months ahead of the market, really figuring out solutions to problems that the market doesn't even know exist yet. But your people, if they are really firing on all cylinders in a professional services delivery company, their job is to be focused on today, this week, this month, maybe, and possibly this quarter, but they're focused on this client right now in their portfolio and delivering excellence to them. So the better they get at their job and the better you get at your job, actually the further apart you are. And that's, you know, there's there's only so many times you can grow the company by 100% every year for 10 years until your people are like, stop with the innovation. We just want to take the car out on the road and see how fast we can drive it. But like, enough, like, just like, maybe let's, maybe just wait a minute. <laughs> like, let's just use this thing before you make the next thing. And if you're somebody who is an instigator and a motivator and a provocateur, sitting still and waiting for them to test the R&D that you've been busy skunk working up, is not fun. It's not that exciting. And so, you know, if you're like me and you're a puzzle solver, you don't do the puzzle and then take it apart and then start it all over again. You do a different puzzle. And so I I needed a different puzzle.
0: So this, and this is why I'm everything that I do keeps coming back to this idea of we need to fix recruiting. So you've been in in exec search. I was, you know, ground floor you know, software developers and project managers, people who are actually going and doing the work and the same kind of problems exist there. The, the, the kind of self-awareness of what I am, what I do, what makes me happy is getting better but still missing and then the communication of that from the recruiting companies, from the companies that are recruiting uh, is missing as well. And so we end up with this really disjointed, it seems like everyone doesn't understand the other, the other hand um, but I, I think we can get it right. I think we can get it really right. But this whole conversation around leadership and culture and all these things and the missing piece is how we fill the funnel with our people. And unfortunately, at this point, I, I don't see anyone who's really attacked that and said, how can recruitment look different? Because we're we're getting closer to building these great cultures and these great teams, but we're still just going through the same Interview process. And really, the only change we're making is tactical, and that's just looking up the questions that Google asked last month.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the problem comes from the traditional business model. And this is why I started my own firm. I, I, I was frustrated that if you're a firm and you're charging one third of the first year's cash compensation and you have to redo that search for free, if the person leaves for any reason it, within the first year, you are not going to bring to that client, people who are unusual, people right. who are the first of, people who are the only, right? You're gonna to bring to them the same kinds of traditional people that they've seen before and that you know will be safe because you're actually not incentivized on the recruiting side to help them do, you know, what others won't, to help them go where others won't. You're incentivized to protect your to protect your assets. And for me, I just that made me feel like I wasn't part of the solution, and when I realized I wasn't part of the solution, I it only left me in one place, right? Which is that I was part of the problem. I was further inculcating a community in the safe choice, and I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And so the way that I, the way that I changed search was I, I, I opened up. All the curtains, and we showed our we showed our clients the call list that we were going to use, the candidates that we were talking to, the people that we were re- rejecting, the ones that we wanted to reach out to. We talked about both the good and the bad, and we didn't offer a one year guarantee. We said that we'll give a one year guarantee if there's anything we should have known but didn't. Mm. But if they leave because of organ rejection, because you're a terrible manager, that I can't handle. That if the person, you know, if the person has a heart attack on day three and they've had seven heart attacks in the last year, that probably should have come out in the reference checks, right? We're not supposed to use their health against them, but if they've had seven heart attacks in the last year, there's a performance issue going on. That should come up in the reference <laughs> checks. But if if you hire somebody because you said we are dedicated to bring diversity into our senior ranks and this is going to be the first person, and we're not sure it's going to go, but we want to work on it, then. You know, we believe that it is it 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 is you are compelled to go out and actually do some training and some 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 uh, some some actual work to talk about those issues of diversity. And so, we would offer not a guarantee, but we'd offer you know onboarding and transition assistance and all of that work. And what was interesting about it is that when we brought the ca- the clients. On board and we made them partners in the process, as opposed to just uh, as opposed to just being vendors to them in the process. We found that that partnership resulted in far fewer searches failing. In fact, in the 15 years that I ran that firm, and I think in the four and a half years since I sold it to my people, there have been less than one handful of searches that have redone. Which you know is ridiculously incredible and that's on us cuz we did really good work but it's on our clients mostly because the work really starts when the can- when the candidate's placed.
0: It's refreshing to hear that that exists because yeah having been in the industry there was there's always these these new ideas but no one ballsy enough to actually go and do them so so then let's flip over then you talked about that transition process actually let's go into that what did that look like for you we talked about your talk which was four years ago, and this process that, that started you on this journey, what did that look like for you going through that?
1: going from search to becoming a speaker
0: uh, <laughs> right. so, and a coach and an author and
1: yeah so would you like me to tell you the story in the very strategic I've executed perfectly on a plan type of way or you want the No
0: real I, I I want because <laughs> I, I've been through it too so I'm going to call bullshit on your perfectly executed strategy.
1: <laughs> not, not, not only is the, is the perfectly <laughs> executed strategy bullshit the, the even existence of a strategy would be bullshit <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so, so this is so this is what happened. So, I uh, announced to my business partner that I want an exit. Uh, I think it's going to take me five years. It does take five years. Uh, selling a professional services uh, firm to your people is uh, was one of the hardest things I've ever done, and I completely underestimated how difficult it would be. So, I didn't spend any of those five years really thinking about what I wanted to do next. I just knew I didn't want to do that anymore. But when I sold the firm, I had this kind of vague notion that I would do venture capital, and here's why: I thought I've created a number of businesses, and I've spent 20 years sizing people up. I can probably, and you know, even though the search that we did was for the nonprofit sector, I, I, we were decidedly a for-profit business, and I'm like, you know. I, I think I could be pretty good at helping a venture capital firm decide who they want to invest in. Because, you know, you invest in the people, right? Not just the business plan. And so I interviewed with a bunch of VC firms and I got a lot of really, um, really generous offers. And what I realized was that as much as I liked the idea of the work, I didn't like so much the venture capitalist. I just I, they had this this idea of the way the world should be and it was like jump in, invest, sell, move on and i, I it, it kind of at least the problems I was talking to it really worked against the institution building notion that I liked and so um, if that hasn 't pissed off a good number of your audience members, this next part might as well so i I then got deeply involved in hillary clinton 's two thousand and sixteen campaign. Um, the intent was, you know, she'd run, she'd win. I'd run presidential personnel in the White House and staff all the ambassadors and the cabinet secretaries and the undersecretaries and great. That'd be terrific. Except she didn't win. So I didn't get that job. (laughs) But um, partway through it, I, um, Partway through it, because I had nothing else to do, I got roped into being the co-chair of an arts auction that uh, worked on behalf of a, of a nonprofit in Boston that works with uh, people with HIV and AIDS. And because I didn't have a job, and my uh, I got introduced by a friend to somebody as, this is Laura, she dedicates her life to philanthropy. And I had one of those moments where I envisioned myself sticking the cocktail fork into her eyes, And then into my eyes, (laughs) I just had this, I can't be that person. I mean, it's not untrue. It's just incomplete. I just, I have dedicated my life to philanthropic things, but also other things as well. And I just had that, Oh God, I'm going to be the wife of John. I'm going to be the, you know, the, the dedicate your life to philanthropy. Like I was like, I can't be that person. So I went home that day and I, bought the URL, lauragassnerodding.com, which then of course I realized was hard for people to spell. So years later I bought KLGO.com and it redirects. And uh, I started blogging and a friend of mine called me up and said, hey, I saw this blog post that you wrote. It's a really interesting idea. I'm the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge and I think you should do it on our stage. And I said, hell to the no, that is terrifying. I have no interest. I am never going to speak in public. I would rather die." And I took the call on speakerphone while I was driving and my 17-year-old, who was then 14, the little shithead said, "'Hey, Mom, don't you tell me I have to do hard things? And don't you tell me that if it doesn't challenge me, it doesn't change me? And don't you tell me that life starts on the other side of the fear?' And I was like, great that you choose to listen to, but not everything else, fabulous. <laughs> so six weeks later, I'm on the stage and it's at the Boston Opera House, which is where the Nutcracker is performed. It's this beautiful three mezzanine, gold gilded walls, crystal chandeliers. I mean, it's like, you know, one swan away from Tchaikovsky at all times. and. And, and, and there are 2,600 people and me and that damn red circle. And it was so frightening. I walked out and I looked at the first mezzanine and then the second mezzanine and then the third mezzanine. And I caught my sister's eye in the third row and she gave me this look like, are you going to pass out? And I gave her a look back like, I think I might. (laughs) And, And then I took a deep breath and I started talking and I can't even watch the talk now because I, I, I appreciate your compliments on it. But I, I, I was this is how a TEDx speaker talks, right? I had this idea of how I was supposed to sound, and now I get on stage and I'm like cocktail party Laura, like I tell stories and I laugh at myself and I'm physical and I move and I I'm funny and uh, and I'm and I'm poignant and I'm vulnerable or at least I try to be all those things. I'm like. C-plus some days, but the TEDx was like very much, I need to speak like an academic. And you know, you've watched my talk. It's not an academic talk. It's like Mm -hmm. a from the gut heart talk. I would give that talk so differently now, but that talk got some attention and that attention got me an offer to go speak in Boise, Idaho for uh, $1,500. a coach plane ticket, the Holiday Inn. And I swear to God, a gray baseball hat with a potato on the forehead. And I went and I couldn't believe that somebody was gonna pay me $1,500 to stand on stage and talk for 45 minutes. And then that got me an offer to go speak in California. And then that got me an offer to speak in New York City. And one after the other, after the other, and all of a sudden I'm on stage with really incredible people. And I'm realizing all of these people and they're all making more money than I do. They've all got books. I should probably get me one of them. <laughs> so I call a, a publisher and I tell him about the book that I wanna write. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. You could do that under our imprint. But first, I, I want you to write this other book uh, that's part of our guidebook series. And it would be the non obvious guide to purpose doing work that matters. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, I guess I could do that. I spent a few weeks, I'm fighting with the editor because. I, I can't be contained by a guidebook, right? Chapter one: problem solution. Chapter two: problem solution. Chapter three: like slit your throat. I, I really, I have like bigger things I want to say about this idea of purpose and doing work that matters. And I call him up and I say, I think you should fire me. I'm not the, I'm not the person for you. I'm not the writer for you. I can't do this. And he said, you're right. I agree. <laughs> I said, wait, what? <laughs> I thought you were wait, what? And he said, but I think you have a bigger idea here and we want to do it in big idea form in hardback in the spring when big idea books come out. And I said, wait, what? (laughs) And and I called a friend and I said, what am I going to do? And he said, well, what do you want people to feel like after they've read this book? And I said, you know, I'm just I'm so sick of everybody being so Limited by everybody else's idea of what they can do and who they can be and what they can be and God forbid what they can't be and I just want them to just stop listening to all that nonsense and just go live their own life already. And he said, "So you want them to be limitless? Carve, uh, ignore everybody, carve their own path and live their best life." And I was like, "Oh my God, I need to hang up the phone right now and go write that book." And literally three weeks later, that book was
0: done. So what you're saying is it was a messy transition. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What I'm saying is, uh, it took me 25 years and three weeks to write a, the best-selling book uh, that would define this, you know, the launch of the second career. So, yeah, it was messy, and it took 25 years of mess to figure out what looks to the outside world like I walked in on third base. In fact, I, I, in one of the communities you and I belong to together, I had somebody say, "Well." I don't understand, like you decided to speak and now you're like speaking for, you know, all these amazing fees and all these big audiences. It's like, you know, you decided to write a book and it debuted as a Washington Post bestseller and Robin Roberts picks it as her as her favorite book of the year. And you decide to do media and you're doing Good Morning America and the Today Show. It's like it's like you just showed up on third base. And (laughs) I looked at him and I said, you know, I did show up on third base, but I spent 25 years hitting triples in order to get here.
0: That's is <clears throat> that's been one of the, the things that I've learned and our friend Trav and I have spent a lot of time in the company of highly successful people, athletes and actors and chefs, and it's the same story. You you get the, the people that kind of shoot to the top and there's this impression that they start on third base, but then you go and speak to them and you sit down for a beer with them or have a pizza with them, and they're like, I worked my ass off. And yes, it was over here. Yes, it was in executive surgery. Yes, it was in politics. Or yes, it was in whatever discipline. But it's a transition of that. And the fact that you have put in the work, I think that, that's most interesting. Um, well, and
1: also, you know, I, I got an offer to speak right when the book was coming out. And there were a few things that I did. You know, if you, if you move a certain Number of books through certain bookstores, they'll put your book in the window, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, this this was this, these these were three events that were going to have fifteen hundred people in each of the audience, and they were going to buy five hundred books for each of the of the three events. So I had Barnes and Noble Union a uh, uh, Union Square, Barnes and Noble Fifth Avenue in New York City, Barnes and Noble Copley Place in Boston. I placed the orders myself and sent them. I didn't make any money off of these speeches, but I got. I got, you know, you you, social media fodder that nobody could ever pay for, right? Like my book in Fifth Avenue, Barnes and Noble in New York City for two weeks. Incredible. Most people won't do that, right? And as soon as I found out who was going to be speaking on that agenda, it was me and three other amazing speakers and Malala, right? Like (laughs) five speakers. Me. Malala, When I found out that I was the opening after Malala. I called up a speaking coach and I was like, okay um, I need to up my game right the hell now and Really quick. How are we going to do this? And 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 I put the time in and I put the effort in and I took the money that I would have loved to have you know Spent on a nice vacation um, And I invested in myself. I invested in getting better and I believe it's what you do in the dark That Nobody can see it's the ugly. It's the hard. It's the it's the the it's the bell shaking uh, Challenging stuff that's that's what other people don't do. They won't do it And then when you show up and all of a sudden it's like, how did you do this? How did you go from nowhere to here? It's like because I worked my ass off for it you just you just didn't see it because you're only paying attention to the success and you're looking at everybody else's success. So you're so busy counting score and keeping score about where you are vis-a-vis everyone else's success. And you should be keeping score about where you are vis-a-vis everyone else's work.
0: Exactly. I had the same thing happen with the podcast that we're on right now. It's the the common methodology was go and interview 50 of your friends. And then you once you've got 50 episodes, you can go and email Seth Godin and, and the big boys yes. and, and have them on. And I just looked at it and said, fuck that. And so I had Adam Grant and Joe Dumas, who's in the NBA Hall of Fame on episode one. And then episode two was Claude Silver and Whitney Johnson. And then, you know, it was just this, but it was the work. And this is the question I get now, how did you do that? And it's like, well, I was up at 1am sending emails to these people and, and studying them and, and uh, going on their websites and, Adam has a a blog that is literally titled "How to Get in Touch with Me via Email." So if you're if you're going to send an email to someone like him, you better have read the 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 blog that he's already done on that. And yeah, I agree with you. There's there's so, but it's
1: so easy. It's so easy. I just you know I just got a blurb from Jordan Harbinger for the paperback uh, in the back of my book, and I tried to get a blurb from him. Two years ago when I was a nobody, and I was just on his show, uh, I just recorded a show with him last week, but when I was reaching out to him to organize the time for the show, I was like, hey, by the way, I don't know if if you ever do this, but I would love to get a blurb from you. It looks like you and I share the same disdain for self-help books. And I happened to have written a self-help book, which by the way, I was horrified when I realized it wasn't a serious career business book and was actually personal development. But I read your blog post on why self-help is terrible and and here's where I agree and here's where I think my book is different. And he was so impressed that I just read something that he wrote and told him what I thought about it and repeated it back to him and he was like, great, that's amazing. Do me a favor, you know, draft the blurb and send it to me and I'll, you know, put my Jordan Harbinger spin on it and that'll be great. And I sent it to him, basically using all the words that he used in his own blog post about why normally self-help is terrible and what the good self-help books are and what they do. And I used, I made that into a quote and I sent it to him, and he was like, You nailed it, perfect as is. Like all the sciences out there, people give us everything that we need in order to have a relationship with them. Like they're just human beings. And so, if Adam Grant has a, a blog post on his website about how to get in touch with him, read it, follow it. Like he's already, he's given you the keys to the kingdom. Like all you need to do is just put the key in the lock and turn it. But it's amazing to me. I stand on stage and I'll tell people, like, be in touch with me, reach out to me. You know, I like, I, I'm, I, when I was doing search, I would walk into organizations and I, and I would tell them what I was looking for and please be in touch, be in touch. And people just don't, like they're so worried that they're going to bother you. They're so scared that you're going to reject them and like, what's the worst that happens? You reach out to Adam Grant and he says, no, you're in the same place you were before you reached out to him. You didn't have him as a guest, period. And if he says yes, you get him as a guest. It's amazing. but It's like we had let this fear of failure get in our way of doing anything that we do nothing.
0: So having this conversation with my mum, so I'm going to ask you this question too, because we were debating. Do you think people are legitimately scared of failure, or do you think they're scared of success?
1: Oh, that is so interesting. So I do, I do a a, a bunch of uh, guest lecturing now in entrepreneurship classes, and there's at the end, there's always somebody who stands up in the back, and he or she will say something like. Well, I'm an entrepreneur, right? They're in this entrepreneurship class. I'm an entrepreneur and I want to start a business and I'm wondering how long did it take you to write your business plan? And uh, I'll ask them if they have a cocktail napkin because I'll write it now. I don't actually have one. And they'll say, well, what would would you have done if you failed? And so I said, well, okay, you're an entrepreneur. Let me ask you this. You're creating a business. What will you do if you fail? And the answer is always, first thing out of their mouth. Well, I'll go back. I'll get a regular job. I'll sit in a cubicle. I'll, you know, do this work. I'll go to school, whatever it is. I will do whatever I need to do until I figure out the next business plan to start the next thing. Okay, great. What will you do if you succeed? And then it's crickets. I've literally never had anybody be able to answer that question. They just look at me like they've never even thought about it. So I don't know if it's that people are afraid of failure or afraid of success. I think people are so busy planning for failure that they don't actually think about the success enough. And then when the success comes, they actually don't know how to capitalize on it. Like they don't, they, they, they're they not thinking, well, if these four things happen, then I'll do those eight things. They just think, okay, if it works, it works. And then they pay themselves whatever's left over at the end of the day. Or you know, they, just, they, don't know how to, they don't know how to thrive in that success. And so then they get stressed and then they get in that trap of like, you have to build bigger, better, faster, more because that's what the world tells us we have to have. And then they're miserable because it's like they're running on a treadmill faster and faster and they're not necessarily making more money, but they've got more headaches. And so I don't know if it's a fear of failure or a fear of success. I think it's a lack of planning for success. Mm
0: yeah i agree with you there It's that it, it, similarly it's one of the things that i say to you know sports franchises that, that at the very top it's like why is winning once good enough like what are you going to do then yes You're just not going to try and win again like why aren't you trying to create a dynasty yes why are you trying to win six in a row like why why are you limiting yourself so and yeah it, it really is just planning okay well if we win the first one, or when we win the first one, the salary cap is going to look like this. And we can anticipate this and this and this. And, and you can put some kind of plan into place for that.
1: Yeah, and again, this is building institutions, not cathedrals.
0: Right. So let me ask you this then, because you know, the the transition process that you went through is similar to mine. I jumped around, did a bunch of different things, got pulled into certain things that I did like, didn't like, you know, I moved from Australia to, to Canada. So I was going through being an immigrant and, and being away from home and, and all these different things and then move from a corporate environment in recruiting where it's very clear what success looks like for you. You sell things. So there's a dollar amount or a sales total or whatever attached mm-hmm. to your success. It's very clear. To so what you and I do now, what do, like, how do you define success for yourself now? Because it's a very different world in speaking and coaching and and consulting and all these different things that that you and I get to do. So you similarly going from a business owner and recruiting and government, like it's very clear what a win for Hillary Clinton looks like versus now. So how do you personally define success given that change for you?
1: So my definition of success has has shifted a lot I would say over the course of the last year when I my book came out in April of 2019 and honestly my definition of success was that if six people bought them at least three of them couldn't be my mom (laughs) like that was my definition I really didn't have any expectation of what what it would be. In fact, I was recording a podcast on April first, uh, and the host was like, "Oh, I've seen you everywhere. You're 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 in, in the Washington Post with Michelle Obama on the bestseller list, and you're here and you're there." And I was like, "Ha ha ha! That's funny, April Fool's." And he's like, "No, no, no. You're on the Washington Post bestseller list." And I was like, "Wait, wait, what?" <laughs> and he's like, "Laura, Google yourself." And literally, on the podcast, I'm googling myself and discovering that I'm on the Washington Post bestseller list. So, you know, that changes the, um, that changes the, the calculus. Um, but what I hear, so here's the space that I found myself in, uh, in the summer, I'm flying back from an event where again, it was five speakers. Uh, Robin Roberts was, was the fifth. She took Malala's place because Malala had to go to do finals. Right. So, um, I'm, I'm flying back and I'm, I'm on this red eye flight and and, and my seat doesn't recline and it was just you know, my client had bought me this beautiful lie flat first class ticket and everything was great. And I was headed back for, you know, an event for my goddaughter in the morning. And like, I couldn't miss Robin Roberts. I couldn't miss the the morning. Like I had to take a red eye. And then there was, uh, there was some mechanical problem with the plane. So they switched the, the, the airplane at the last minute. And so I'm like in the center seat in coach and I can't recline and it's terrible. And I'm not complaining at all about, about that. I just, in this particular moment, I was so Tired and I couldn't sleep. And at four thirty in the morning, I gave up and I opened up my laptop and I started writing this blog post. Which, went something like it's four thirty eight a.m. or maybe it's 1.38 a.m. or maybe it's seven thirty eight a.m., I don't actually know. But somewhere between the blur that was yesterday in Vancouver and the blur that <laughs> that be tomorrow in Boston is the space I'm in right now. And the space I'm in right now is wonder hell. And wonder hell is. It's it's that moment where you've done something and it's successful and you realize that it could be, you have more in you. It could be bigger, you could be bigger. And it is so exciting and so amazing and so wonderful that anybody wants to spend even five minutes thinking about a thing that you've created. And you've also never been so tired in your entire life, right? It's wonderful and it's hell. It's wonder hell. And wonder hell is the space in your psyche where the burden of potential walks in and unpacks its sleeping bag and camps out and goes, hey, what you got for me? Are you going to live into this newfound potential that you realize that you had, or are you going to let it pass? And there's that moment where there's this Rubicon moment where there was the you before you felt that burden, before you realized that potential, and there's the you after. And you can't unsee that you. You can just choose to not live into it. And so... By the way, that's going to be my next book. It's going to be around this topic of wonder hell. But for me, the idea of success right now is to figure out the full dimensions of my wonder hell, like just what is my potential. And as I'm feeling the burden of that potential crushing down on my shoulders, learning how to thrive in it and not just survive in it.
0: Well, I want to write a blurb for that book. So please come to me for that, um, because it's it's so true. Is and this is this comes back to that success or failure question as well. Is is you're right? There is a there is a tipping point at some some stage where you're like, geez, this is going really well. Like you know, I there's a belonging, but also a lack of belonging at the same time.
1: There's this moment where you look around and you're like, you're no longer looking around, going, is someone going to kick me out? Is someone going to realize I don't belong here? Like I actually. Maybe, maybe I do belong here. And there's, you know, there's that, there's that notion that if you can name it, you can tame it. And I think that's horseshit. I think if you name it, you can claim it. And it was in this moment of having no sleep and being off of the high of getting off of the stage and just feeling like, this is amazing. This is incredible. I can't believe I pulled that off wow, nobody kicked me like, I've never done this before. And I did it and it worked and my pants didn't explode and I survived. There's that moment where you're like, you know what? I belong under the oak tree with Oprah. (laughs) She's got to talk to someone. Why not me? And there's that moment when you realize maybe I do belong. And wait, if I do belong, and you know, there's that whole there's a whole gradual marks. Like, I don't want to be in any club. They'll have me as a member, right? There's, there's a moment where you realize like if I do belong here, maybe I've undershot my goals and I actually belong in the next room or the next room or the next room. And I wonder what's there.
0: Yes. And personal story, but when you started talking about potential, that is what I'm running away from. Uh, like it's it's kind of been this burden on me my whole life. I was a very good Aussie rules football player, almost got drafted, had potential, and it was kind of that thing. Gee, you got so much potential. Okay, so that doesn't work out. By 18, then you've got to recreate yourself. So you go into the workforce, same thing. All these different jobs, nothing really fit, wasn't really comfortable in any of them, but didn't know what else to do. But it was always you've got potential. And then comes this writing and speaking. And and that's the one that kind of takes off as like this is such a natural fit, but I, I can't escape that idea of the word potential chasing me around basically my whole life,
1: mm. and, and
0: wanting to and wanting to realise that, not knowing what what form it's going to take necessarily, but just wanting to find that thing. I was like, no, the potential is not good enough. The term is like you are good enough. Like you're amazing at this. Um, and yeah, so anyone that's been in that that situation, whether it's in sports, whether it's in business, whether it's in any discipline that you're in, it uh, it can be quite harrowing if it follows you around.
1: It, you know, it is, and and I I do believe, you know, like a sports person, like take Michael Phelps for example, i right? most dedicated, most decorated Olympian in history. And he could have just gone on, he could have swam off into the sunset, never to be heard from again, right? Lots of athletic uh, endorsement deals and run Michael Phelps swimming camps forever and made plenty of money. But he chose to become very vocal and very upfront about mental health. And I'm fascinated that he felt this burden. He felt this need to become a person who spoke about that, right? He didn't have to do it. And yet there was something in him, that even him, somebody who has had reached the highest of heights in his chosen profession, still is nagged by this idea that there's potential within him to do something else with that platform. So I think no matter where we go, no matter what we achieve, every time we achieve something, it unlocks something inside of us that says, hey, what you got? You got a little more? I bet you have a little more. So I I think that if you're somebody that, that potential nags at, I think that the only thing that you can do is embrace it. You know, we have this idea, you know, I, I, Mentioned to you before we before we started recording that I read lean in and I didn't love it And I know I was supposed to love it But I, but I didn't <laughs> and I didn't love it not because Cheryl Sandberg used all this amazing privilege to get to where she got to Frankly, I did the same thing. You've done the same thing. Everybody's done the same thing We'd be foolish Nazis whatever privilege we have at our disposal to get to where we want to get to okay. even if some of us have a few fewer zeros behind our names than Cheryl had My issue with Lean In was that there was this one myopic, unflinching definition of success that the fastest and most expedient path to the corner office was the only one that counted, and that we'd know we got to the top. We know we'd be successful when we got to the top. And it worked for me, right? I was the youngest vice president at that big traditional executive search firm, and I was like, I got to the top, but the top of what? Is this really where I want to be, right? And so you have someone like Michael Phelps who got to the top and still. Had something in there. Still had something he had to do. So I think, you know, wherever you ended up in your sports career or in 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 you know your professional work and recruitment and speaking and podcasting and any of it, there's always going to be more. My my father grew up uh, uh, quite uh, in, in, in quite um, uh, I wouldn't say poor, but they certainly they certainly. Uh, he did not have a lot of money growing up he he grew up in brighton beach brooklyn uh he had one brother with whom he shared a pull out sofa in a one bedroom apartment uh with his parents until the day he moved out when he married my mother and as a little boy he'd go down to the to the new york harbor and he would watch these boats these big beautiful boats you know going around the the harbor and mm-hmm. he would say, I'm going to do that when I get older. And I remember he, 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 you know, he went to college, Brooklyn college. He went to downstate medical. He became a surgeon. He made lots of money and he bought a 48 foot, boat. And I remember I was like 12 years old at the time. And we took it from Miami where I grew up across uh, the the uh, um, to the Bahamas. And we pulled into this beautiful marina and he was so proud of himself. And here he was with his beautiful family and his beautiful boat. And he achieved everything he wanted to achieve. And then some guy pulls in with a 60 foot boat next to him. And it was like,
0: <laughs> wah,
1: wah. <laughs> like someone's always going to have a bigger boat. There's always going to be you know, somebody else who wins another medal, there's always gonna be, there's always another mountain to climb. And so I think it's not just you've got potential, you've got potential, but it's what do you define as success in this season of your life? And are you bringing your very best to that? And if you're bringing your very best to that and you're doing that work in the dark that nobody sees in order to make sure that you're not just lying to yourself and being a wantrepreneur, but really, you know, doing the work of being an entrepreneur or a leader, then what you achieve is your potential, and that's awesome.
0: It's almost like being limitless and going where others won't. Those two things times together, look at us.
1: That's right. We should we, we could we could should create a new series like Unstoppable. Oh, we should.
0: <laughs> we should. And um, yes, let's do it. All right. Speaking of limitless, we did we did the unboxing <laughs> before we came on here. <laughs> uh, for the, for the paperback. So where can people find it and where can they find you and follow you and all the different things that you've got going on?
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, they can find me online at HeyLGO.com and (laughs) at HeyLGO on all the social channels. Uh, the book is available, uh, in hardback and now paperback, uh, as of, 20 minutes ago, Um, it's on amazon.com, it's on, uh, it's Barnes & Noble, uh, anywhere five books are sold, and actually starting on March 1st, this beautiful little paperback is going to be in bookstores
0: at the airport too. Fantastic. I'm so glad we ripped up the plan and just had an amazing conversation. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you for bestowing your wisdom upon us, and uh, next time, we're going to do this unstoppable show. So we'll launch that. I love it. Um, And we'll do it from Boston. Sounds good. I'm coming for a visit. Me and you and Trav in the sauna. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Done. There's that show right there. That's right. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to catching up in person, but um, yeah, so much value, and and I'd recommend anyone listening, sports coaches at at any level, um, people in in management, executives, go out and pick up Limitless because it's uh, it's breathtaking, and uh, you know any book that comes out in three weeks, I think, is is worth a read, quite frankly. So uh, go pick it up. And LGO, thank you. Thank you,
1: Cody.